Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We're going to continue where we left off last week. And we're going to talk about some specific things to do to live in the new year in a way that brings glory and honor unto the Lord. A few weeks ago, I, uh, in November actually, I preached a sermon out of my life verse, which is Isaiah 26, 8. In Isaiah 26, 8, it says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desires of our souls. And I took that 26, 8, and as part of a movement that has happened called a 268 generation, we talked about living a 268 life, a life that brings glory, that God's name, God's renown, God's glory is the desire of our souls. And as I was thinking about the turning of a new decade, a new year, the question came into my mind, well, how would we live our lives to display that glory? And so today we're going to talk out of Romans chapter 15 about some principles of living in the next year in a way that brings glory and honor unto the Lord. We're going to give some very practical steps about how to do some of that, and then we are going to ask you, or I'm going to ask you, to commit to some things in the coming year. If you remember, we left off last week in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and I said last week that chapter 15, verse 13, will be a great verse to claim for the year ahead. I saw a couple of a couple of people posted this on Facebook and Twitter and some other places this week, just kind of as a declaration as the year was ahead, and so some of you have done that. It's a great verse to claim for the year that is coming. This is, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, then in verse 14, Paul begins to talk about what his job is, what his role is. And he begins by talking to the Romans about what they're doing okay. Verse 14 says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves. Now, that's important because he's emphatic. What he's saying is, this is coming directly from me to you, and it's absolutely true. He says, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. It's basically like Paul is saying, hey, listen, here are some good things I see about your church. And the first is, you're a bunch of good people. You're all good people. You do good stuff. I don't see any bad things really happening there. Uh, You've got good knowledge. You know a lot of stuff. And you're good at teaching each other some things. And Paul is really setting the stage to say, here's some other things I want you to think about. But before we get there, let me just say that if I were to analyze our church, if I were to say these are some things about our church, I would say that those three things are strengths in our church. You're good people. Now, I look out and I see a bunch of good people. If you look out and you see people that aren't good people, don't tell me, okay? But for the most part, we're good people. It's, uh, you know, it's been my privilege the last two and a half years to get to know many of you, to pastor you, to lead you, to be able to spend time with you. I've been on uh, trips with many of you. I've eaten dinner with many of you. And all in all, we're good people. Sometimes as a staff, we will talk on Mondays. We have our staff meetings. Sometimes we'll just talk about um, good people that God has placed in this church for His glory. We're good people. The second part of that is, and you know a lot of stuff. Now, I don't want you to get puffed up or the big head, you know. 
I've had people in my life tell me that their job in life was to make sure I didn't get the big head. That usually means they want to complain a lot or tell me flaws they see. But you know quite a bit. If we were to ask you about Scripture, you would know many of the basics. There's knowledge there. Uh, We are a part of a generation that has more availability of knowledge about Scripture than any generation that has ever been. And so that's a strong suit. And for the most part, we do a good job of instructing each other. Well, by Sunday school classes, good teachings going on. So Paul says those things are true of the Roman church, and I would say they're true here. Verse 15, he doesn't say the word but here, but he kind of means but. What he's saying is all that is true but. I've just spent the last 15 chapters instructing you in some very important matters. I've written you quite boldly on some points as to remind you of them again. And then just in case they missed it, he says, here's the thing I want to remind you of. That God has given me grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why... I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Three things I want us to see in this passage of Scripture about living for the glory of God. Living 268 for the glory, for the renown of Jesus Christ in the year ahead. And the first thing is, if we're going to live for the Lord, we must first know God's heart. We must know God's heart. What Paul is basically saying here to the Romans is, you've got a lot of stuff going good. You're doing this, you're, you're, you're good people, you're teaching each other, there's lots of information, there's an outflow of ideas, things are happening, you're instructing, you're learning, all that is good. But I'm afraid you've missed the heart of what God intends. And my concern for us in America and my concern for us here at First Baptist Church Gillisville is that we will have tons of good things in 2010. Tons of good things that happen, and yet we will miss the very heart of God. So I begin to think to myself, well, how do you know someone's heart? I mean, how do you know someone's heart and what they're all about? Now, when I say heart, obviously I'm not talking about the you know, the muscle beating inside of us, right? I mean their essence, who they are, their passions, their dreams, their desires, what, what they're wanting to see accomplished. And so when you are talking to someone, trying to find their heart, how do you discover that? Tell me, how do you discover somebody's heart? What's that? You get to know them. How do you do that, Bob? Okay, relationship. I'm, I'm poking. I, you, you opened your mouth, Bob. I'm going after you now. 
So in a relationship, Bob, how do you get to know somebody? I mean, I mean, relationships don't just happen, right, Janet? They don't just happen, right? You have to spend time with them, right? Thank you, Janet. Janet's helping you out there. Spend time with them, all right? So you get to know them. What else do you, how else do you get to know somebody? You have to be honest, so you have to have conversation with them, spend time. How else can you know about or know people? Notice what they do. Watch them. Watch how they live. Interact with them. See how things happen. All right. Ask questions. Find other people that know them. That's like the seventh grade version of I like him. Can you go see if he likes me? Right? Right? You find out information about that. Here's what I did. I just came up with three simple ways that you can know somebody's heart that apply to knowing God's heart. And the first is this. You've got to spend time and talk to him. Just talk to him. Now, the spiritual word we use for that is what? Prayer, right? But prayer for us has become something that prayer was not intended to be. Prayer has become for us listing things to God that we want. I want this, this, and this. I need this, this, and this. This person's sick. That person needs help. Could you help here, here, and here? Lord, I really need direction here, here, and here. Prayer was never intended to be a laundry list of questions or requests. Prayer was intended to be a conversation. One of the things that um, is my favorite time of day is when it's supper time at the house. And we try most nights when we're at the house to have supper around the table with the four of us, soon to be five of us. And as we sit around the table, there's that moment before we eat, or usually after the boys have already had a few bites to themselves before mom and dad can get there, where we stop and we hold hands and we pray. Well, in our family recently, Luke has decided he wants to be the prayer. He's the one that's going to pray. Now, some nights he doesn't, but most nights he just wants to pray. And Luke always starts with just thank yous. And one of the interesting things about Luke's prayer is there's never really a request in there. It's just thank yous. And he usually says thank you for mommy and daddy and baby sister and sometimes reluctantly Eli. And last night he began to pray. Luke has gotten the thing where he'll, he'll pray for the few things on the front end, and then he becomes almost indecipherable in the middle, what he's saying. You just can't hear it. But last night he did that. He did the thank you for the family, and then he did the thank you. And he got to the end and he said, and thank you for all my Batman stuff. Just clear, open, honest. One of the things I love about Luke's prayer is he hasn't been taught how to pray yet. And so he just talks. He hasn't learned that to pray to God, you've got to put on a super voice or act really spiritual. He just talks. And one of the things, if we're going to live for the Lord in the year ahead, is we've got to learn just to talk to Him. In the car, by yourself, driving. Now, I said by yourself, it's kind of important. You start talking out loud to God in the car with other people. That can be difficult. But talk out loud. You don't have to. You can be in the quiet of your own home, taking some time, turning the TV off. Just talk to him. I remember when I was in high school, I was talking to one of my spiritual leaders, and I just said, you know, I'm finding a hard to find a time to pray. I just, my day is so busy. 
I really didn't understand what a busy day was all about back then, but I thought my day was really busy. And I'll never forget something he told me. He said, Lyle, there are two things that you control in your life. The time you go to bed and the time you wake up in the morning. Move it back ten minutes or get up ten minutes early. Spend time in prayer. Talk to him. Conversation. Here's how my day was going. Here's what happened. Lord, you know I'm, I'm messed up here. Lord, you know I need some help here. Lord, I am so thankful for what I have. Just talk. Second thing is you need to read about him. You need to read his word. God has given us an open invitation to understand who he is in writing to us the Bible. We're going to talk again at the end a little bit about reading through the Bible in a year, but that's the reason I've challenged us as a church to do that. Is because you cannot understand the heart of God unless you read the word of God. There are all kinds of people out there that will tell you God said something to them. Right? You can turn on the television this afternoon, and you can find people saying, God told me this. And the truth is, God does still speak, but he never speaks contrary to his word. The problem is, we've got a whole bunch of people here today, not necessarily here, but in our country and in our society, that don't have a clue what God says in his word. And so when anybody stands up and says, God said this to me, they go, ooh, that must be true, or... Well, God doesn't even do that anymore. Read his word. And here's the last thing. Spend time around his people. That's why what we're doing here is so important. And it's not just for me preaching to you. I mean, there are lots of places today to get good preaching. You don't have to be around a bunch of people to do that. Next big thing, supposedly, is an Internet church. You go to church in your pajamas and listen to a sermon. Well, that... The reason that won't ever really work, unless there's strong support on it, is because you need time with God's people. You know, I was thinking about this, about learning my children and the ways that I learn who they are and what they believe. And, and, and there are lots of ways. It's talking to them. It's, it's going through uh, stories that I hear from other people about them. And I couldn't help but think of the times that Susan and I sit together and we compare stories of what they've done. You won't believe what Luke said this afternoon. Man, Eli did this, really helped out this afternoon. And part of what it means to be together as God's people is just to share the story of what God's doing in your life. In Sunday school, there ought to be opportunities for you to go, man, God showed up this week in this way. Well, I didn't even think about that, but that's similar to what God's done for me. Just sharing. So the first thing we're going to do if we're going to live for the Lord and 2010 for his glory and for his name is that we've got to learn his heart and here's the thing when you talk to him when you read his words when you spend time with his people what you're going to realize is that god's heart is focused on people on people susan and i went and watched avatar the other day how many of you have seen avatar some of you we went and watched avatar the other day you know it's i saw i saw uh statistic this morning that worldwide it's already made 750 million dollars of course that's not a big profit it costs 500 million to make so it's not a huge profit but it's a huge movie and i remember you know we're, we're sitting there and we're watching it in the 3d we've got our cool 3d glasses on looking sharp and you're just immersed in this world and as you're immersed in this world you you just feel like you're a part of it 
And you can get so enwrapped in what's happening around you that you miss kind of the underlying story. Now, I know you know the story if you've been to the movie, and I won't spoil it because everybody knows the story if you've even seen the preview. It's about a human that gets involved in an alien race and tries to save them. But the underlying message there is interesting because the underlying message is that all humans are evil. You don't really get that. It's just by the end of the movie, you are rooting that all the humans will die. Some of you watched the movie, right? I mean, the, the helicopters, whatever those new thing, thing things are, you're, they're flying out there, they're shooting down Mother Tree or whatever. And you're like, shoot those humans down. Get them. You just are. You're angry at them. The biggest villain in the movie, one of the most, the biggest villains of all time is this general, and you just... I don't use this term lightly. You hate the man by the end of it. Because he's a man. I don't mean that from a women's point of view. I just mean he's human, all right? And this is what I thought. There are some, and and here's the thing, some of what James Cameron, who wrote the movie and directed the movie, some of what his complaints about humanity is true. We make a mess of things. We destroy things. We're evil in some parts of our hearts. That's who we are. It is true. But what I came out of the movie and thought about is God knows every bit of that, and yet he still roots for us. He still loves us. He still cares for us because his heart beats for people, all people. And the problem is there are a lot of people in this world that have no clue that he loves them. Paul says here in Romans 15 that it was his privilege, the grace God gave me. That means it's a gift that I don't deserve but is beyond explanation that I get to talk to the Gentiles about what it means to be loved by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here's some numbers for you about the number of people in the world that don't know about Jesus. Today, there are at least 16,348 ethne. Now, that word ethne comes from when Jesus says that you will be my witnesses. Um, when he tells them the great commission that they're to go into all the world, baptizing them. Whenever they use the word nations there, what the word there is ethne. And it doesn't mean geographical boundaries. It doesn't mean the United States or Mexico, or Russia, or England. What it means is groups of people that have the same language, culture, tribe. There may be 40 ethne in a country. Well, there's 16,348 ethne, or 6.7 billion people as of November 28th. Now, I don't know how they count that exactly, but that's an estimate, I assume. Here's this. Today, of those 16,000, 6,000 647 are unreached. That means that no gospel witness has ever been there. And you put that together with limited access, you have 3.4 billion people with little or no access to the gospel. Here's the thing. In North America, there are 255 million lost people or three out of every four. Here's the thing. When you begin to know the heart of God, the things that bring God joy brings us joy. And the things that break his heart break our hearts. When you look at a statistic that 255 million people in North America are lost, 
It ought to break our heart. Somebody has said this. I mean, some of that, in North America, 255, some of those have had an active witness. Some of them haven't. And somebody said that nobody has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has heard it once. Carl F.H. Henry reminding us of what Paul says, that it's urgency that we need to get out and tell people about it. We need to realize, Carl F. Henry says, that the good news is only good news if it gets there in time. And today, there will be hundreds of thousands who will breathe their last breath, pass on into eternity, never having heard of the good news of Jesus. If we're going to live a year where God's glory is proclaimed in our lives, we have to begin to have the heart of God for the nations and for people. Whether they're next door or whether they're across town or whether they're across the world. And then we have to have two action steps out of that. And the first is this. We must give to God's heart. We must give to God's heart. Paul doesn't speak specifically about giving money in this passage. But what he does talk about is giving his life to a goal, about giving all that he is to this task. Here's an interesting thing. He says in verse 20 that he's always wanted to preach where there was no known witness of Christ. And he tells us, I love this, in verse 23, he says, I don't have any place to work around here. Wouldn't it be great if you could say about your life, I don't know a single person I need to tell about Jesus right here. I've done that work. And so he says to them, by the way, I've never seen you because there's already a witness there, so I'm not going to come there where there's already church. I'm going to go where there are not. He said, but on my way to Spain, I may stop by for a little bit. Now, I know when we read that, we think, well, that's kind of like my, my uh, you know, in-laws or mom and dad saying, hey, we're on our way to Gatlinburg. We're just going to stop by for a little bit. That's not what Paul is intending here. He's saying he might spend some time with them. But here's the real thing that ought to drive us into that, ought to give us what Paul was willing to give up for that. The Spain there, the reason that Spain is on his horizon is because there was a place in Spain literally called the ends of the earth. They, they did those maps back then. You remember, they didn't know we were over here, right? Well, we weren't here either anyways, but they didn't know anybody was over here. And so for them, the ends of the earth was literally Spain. And Paul just is naive enough to think when Jesus says you need to go to the ends of the earth, Paul says, I'm going where? To Spain, to the ends of the earth. He's just naive enough to think God said it. That means I'm supposed to do it. And so what Paul is saying is my entire life is given to this, and I don't care what I have to give up. He is literally giving his life to that. Now, I'm not asking you today to give your life completely to seeing the nations reached. I'm not asking you today to go anywhere yet. But I'm asking you to do your part to give. Time, talent, and resources. Here's some statistics about giving in America today. From EmptyTomb.org is a site that has some of this stuff on it. More than one in four American Protestants, that's People like us, non-Catholics, give nothing to the work of the church. Remember, that word nothing is one of those words that means the same whatever language you're in. Nothing means nothing. The median annual giving, and we're not going to do a statistics class here. Some of you know what median is, some doesn't, but it's kind of in the middle. For Christian, is 2.6%. 
What's the biblical norm? What are we supposed to give? Ten. Only 27, one out of four roughly, of evangelicals. That's not just Protestants. That are people like us that believe that we are to take the gospel that Jesus only saves and we've got to take the gospel to people. 27% is all they give 10% or more of their income. Here's some more. About 5% of the Christians provide 60% of the money. 20% of Christians account for 86% of the money. And 10% of evangelicals, 33%. Now, you have to understand, Protestants are like here, and then you move right to the evangelicals. I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about conservatively. You move to evangelicals, and then the farther right you go are fundamentalists. 33% give nothing. The problem there is not that, you know, sometimes when pastors talk about this in a church setting, it's we need the money because we need the money as a church. I saw this week, I don't know if you saw this story or not, where uh, Rick Warren, pastor out in Saddleback, they came up $900,000 short. So on the website he posted for two days, we need $900,000 in two days. A lot of people got on to him about, hey, well, you can't, yeah, that's ridiculous to ask for that amount of money for your church. And Rick said in an interview I saw, and I appreciate him saying this, he said, listen, that 900000 is to make up for ministries we've already done in the community. I don't know if you saw, but they got about $2.7 million, so they're okay. I put in a call to Rick real fast, see if they've got any extra left over, but he hasn't called me back yet. It's not that we as a church need the money. Now, the truth is, finance committee is all cringing when I say that phrase, but the truth is that, yes, to operate, to move, we need money. But here's the point. When you are disobeying God, you are preventing yourself from enjoying what God has in store for His work and His ministry through you. And on top of that, if we would just get a hold of what God has called us to do, we could see some amazing things happen. Somebody put this list together. A list of just a list of what could happen in the next year if we gave 10%, if every Christian gave 10% of their income. Listen to this. 150,000 new missionaries in nations most closed could be supported. We could triple the resources being spent by all Christians on Bible translating, printing, and distribution. And we could do that to provide for the 2,700 people groups that don't have any Bible. We could quadruple the total resources being spent by all Christians to evangelize the unevangelized world. On top of all that, we could eradicate polio worldwide. On top of that, we could give a million new clear water well drilling projects per year. We could prevent and treat malaria worldwide. We could provide food, clothing, and shelter to 6.5 million refugees in Africa, Asia, and Middle East. We could sponsor 20 million needy kids worldwide, and we could quadruple the global Christian medical missions, all that together, if we just did what we're supposed to do. Here's the last thing. We've got to learn to go to the heart of God. Remember what I said? What, what is God's heart all about? What's God's heart all about? People. 
God's heart is all about people. And if we're going to live for the glory of God in 2010, we've got to go to where God's heart is, and that is to people, specifically people who do not know Him. Paul says this in Romans 15. It's this little phrase in verse 17. He says, This is the way I glory in Christ Jesus, or the way I bring glory to Christ Jesus, the way that I give glory to Christ Jesus, the way that I worship Christ Jesus, the way that I honor Christ Jesus. This is how I do it. It's in my service to God. What I love there is he doesn't say it's in the hour that I give him on Sunday mornings when I sing when I'm supposed to sing, when I listen when I'm supposed to listen. He doesn't say it's when I'm reading my Bible in the mornings, which you're supposed to do. He doesn't say it's in my prayer time, although that's important to do. What he says is I glory, I bring honor, I bring attention, I bring renown to Christ Jesus in my service to God. And so we must go. Now, your going might be across the street to your neighbor that's without Jesus. Your going might be to a family member that doesn't understand who Jesus is. Your going might be across town, it might be across the state, or it might be across the world. But we must go. One of the things that I've committed as a pastor for us as a church to be, as long as the Lord has called me here, is that we're going to be an Acts 1-8 church, doing mission projects here statewide, nationally, and internationally. Sometimes people ask me this question, well, don't you think there's enough work around here to do that we don't have to send people all over the world? And the truth is, there's plenty of work. But that doesn't mean we don't go all over the world. I just took in some numbers from the Brazil mission trip we did last summer. We're going back to Chile this year. We're going to Brazil this summer. We're going to be having meetings soon about the Brazil trip. The Chile trip's kind of already locked in. But if, if you would be willing to think about going to Brazil, we're going to have meetings real soon starting this month. Here are the numbers that I did. I just looked at some basic numbers and the conservative estimates. And with the number of people that said they made a first-time commitment to the Lord Jesus in our Brazil mission trip, that number is more than the last 15 years combined that this church has done here. The number of people in one week that gave their heart to Jesus is more than the 15 previous years here. Now here's the thing. Part of that is because of a renewed passion to sharing the gospel there. Part of it is because there's an openness there that is not here. But my point is, if we as a congregation, we're devoted to sharing Christ as we go here. The effect would be unbelievable. We're going to do invitation a little bit differently today. In just a moment, I'm going to have, they're up here at the front, but they need to get passed out. And so I'm going to have to ask some volunteers to come and pass out. You're going to get two copies of the same thing. How many copies are you supposed to get? How many? Two. Okay, two copies of the same thing. And it's a commitment sheet. If some of you guys want to come and just start picking them up and making sure everybody gets a couple, that'd be great. And on this commitment sheet are things that you're committing to do in 2010. We need to make sure we take some up to the balcony, too. I see you balcony people up there. The crowd's growing up there. I see it. And you're going to mark on this 
things that you're committing to do in 2010. Now, the reason you have two copies is this. One of the copies is for you to keep, to know what you need, to understand what's going on there so that you can keep that at home. The other copy is going to be in a moment we're going to sing an invitation song. And during the invitation, I'll still be down front. If you've got other issues that you need to discuss, if you want to talk about accepting Jesus as your Savior, I'll be here. If you want to come and join what we're doing here at this church, you feel it's time to do that, I'll be here for that. If you've got other questions, I'll do that. What I'm asking you today is to to just check off the things on here that you're willing to commit to. Now, don't check them off yet because I'm going to explain them in a minute. And then when you are done, to sign it and to bring it as an offering unto the Lord here. Some of you may want to stop and pray over it when you're here. Some of you may just want to put it here. Let me just say this. If you don't feel comfortable bringing it down front, then don't bring it down front. What we're talking about here is a serious commitment unto the Lord. The Bible is clear in several spots that in your commitment to the Lord, you must make sure that you are serious about vows you make unto the Lord. Now, let me say this. God understands where your heart is. And some of you in this room say, I have no idea if I can read the entire Bible in 2010, but I want to, and I want to try to. Then I want you to mark that. God understands your heart. Here's the thing. I didn't call these resolutions, and I didn't do it last week, because resolutions are things you resolve to do, and you break it once, and you quit. Here's the great thing about God. When you mess up, and you will, When you mess up, Scripture teaches us that every morning is like a New Year's Day. So here's the thing. If you mess up and you don't read the Bible one day, or you don't pray, or you don't do something on this list, throw yourself a big party, shoot some fireworks off the night before, stay up to midnight, and say it's New Year's again, all right? But I'm asking you to commit to a couple of these things. We got enough up in the balcony, and we need some more. We need some more up there? Yeah, okay. Just simply... You're committing to reading the entire Bible in 2010. We've got plans on the table to do that in a way that you don't have to read 14 chapters of Genesis in a day or 12 chapters of Leviticus tomorrow, okay? You can kind of divide it up. That'll be out there. Pray 10 minutes a day. Somebody said that just seems like a ridiculously low amount of time. Here's the truth. The average pastor prays four minutes a day, okay? There are not good studies out there about church members, but all of them say it's less than that. So 10 minutes. Pray for five people I know. What I want you to do in the next week is come up with those five names and begin to pray for them. Pray for them to come to know Jesus in 2010. Now let me ask you a question. If you pray every day for those five people to come to know Jesus and they don't in 2010, is that your fault? No. But you're going to pray for it. You're going to share your faith with two people in 2010. You're going to give biblically in 2010. That's 10% plus. You're going to be involved in a local mission project in 2010. That means that your Sunday school class, you personally, you're going to be involved in a mission project. Let me define that. A mission project is something where you're helping people with the purpose of sharing Jesus Christ with them. It's not helping people that are already Christians. That's ministry. That's great. But I'm talking about mission here. And the last one is be involved in reaching the nations. Some of you in this room can't go overseas. I'm not asking everybody here to go overseas. I'm asking you to go overseas if God calls you to go to Brazil or goes to Chile. I'm asking you to do that. But if not, that means praying. That means giving. That means being real about doing all that you can to support what we're doing overseas.